Well, good morning, Branch Church. And good morning to our Branch Church family online. It's a blessing to be with you all this morning. So the day before Mother's Day this year, Saturday, my wife and I and our family, we went to get groceries. We were going to host Mother's Day for my mom and my side of the family at our house. And so we go in, we get what we needed. We come out to the car. Excuse me. Aubrey takes the girls and she puts them in. I have Titus in the cart. I put the cart behind the van. I put him in. I buckle him really quick and I come out only to find the cart is tailing it down the parking lot and the Trader Joe's La Mesa parking lot, which is slanted if you've ever been there. So I bolt after it to grab it, hoping to God it doesn't hit anything. I grab it. I'm looking around. I don't see it hit anything. But there is one woman parked right in the middle and she's getting ready to turn in about three or four spaces down from us. And so I come up to her window and I do the whole, can you hear me? Are you okay? Did it hit you? And she's like, yes, it hit me. And I look and sure enough, there is a big red cherry Trader Joe's cart lipstick mark on her white pearl SUV. She pulls in and I'm over there and I'm trying to like, can I rub it up before she gets out? And that didn't work. And I'm like, I'm really sorry to have met you this way. Um, I'll, do, I'll do what I can to help fix it. I'll come to your house. I'll meet you at the park, like whatever's comfortable for you. And so we're talking and then she says, happy Mother's Day. And it was like, I'm just about to ruin a lady's Mother's Day. It's the day before Mother's Day. And so we exchange information. We go home. We're hosting the party for my mom and the ladies in our family. And then I get a call. I don't answer it, but a voicemail pops up. So I listen to the voicemail and lo and behold, she wants me to come that day. She was really intent on getting it fixed that day before Mother's Day, and rightly so. So I'm like, oh man, we got this party. I'm trying to be here. Uh, I got to go fix that. We got sermon prep, tomorrow's church, right? So there's a lot going on in my head. It's kind of hard to be at the party, like fully in that moment. So I asked my dad, like, how would you fix this? I asked my brother-in-law, he builds elevators. How would you fix this? You're a handy guy. My mom shares, and so I go to good old YouTube. And I'm looking for a good testimony that I could use. Sure enough, I find one. I'm like, this looks legit. So I watch it, I get the materials, party ends, I rush over to her house. She comes out and rightfully so, she watches me do it. Never done it before. So I take out my WD-40, spray it. I see some heads nodding. I'm doing good so far. I take the magic eraser and some warm water, which I brought, and you start to rub the paint kind of with it, right? You don't want to go against it in the wrong way. And then you take your microfiber cloth and you wipe it and you keep doing that until it's gone. And praise God, it worked. Thank God for you too, for whoever posted that and gave me good testimony that I could have and that I could use. And now you all can remove paint. Uh, if, if anything bad happens, it's not my fault. I'm not encouraging you to do it this way. It worked for me. No, it was good testimony. It was good. And I was so thankful for it. Turns out she was a believer at Shadow Mountain. She was also a widow. And we had done the sermon on widows just the week prior. So it was this really interesting interaction that we got to have. And it was like, see you in heaven, you know, have a good night. And she's like, thank you, God. Thank you, God, so much. Not trying to pay for that. Today, we are jumping into the testimony of John. And what struck me the most about John's testimony is that it's not his testimony. Now, don't get me wrong. It is his testimony, but it's not because God actually gives him this testimony. How did he know who the Messiah was? How did he know the Messiah was coming? How did he know the titles and the things he actually uses about him when he arrives? It's because God 
told it to him. God gave him a good testimony that he could use. And as we see in chapter one, he will not only use it, but it will impact person to person after that. And as we read this story today of John's testimony, we're gonna learn this. God gives us testimony about Jesus. It seems so obvious, but maybe it's not. Of all the gifts God gives us, he actually gives us the gift where he gave us his testimony of what to think, what to believe, and what to know, and what to share about his son. If you have your Bibles, turn with me, please, to John chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. It says, Now this is the testimony of John... When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? This is a big deal. For this group of people to get together, John must be doing something that's very noticeable, something very viral. And they want to know, what are you doing? And they ask him this, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. Who did they think he was? Firstly, it seems that they thought he was the Christ or the Messiah, the one chosen in the Old Testament to come. Are you this guy? Now, in first century, there was great messianic expectation. There's at least two types of Messiah people were looking for. One of them was the Davidic Messiah. That means someone that would come through the lineage of David. The other is that people thought there would be a priestly Messiah. And, and I presume that would be from the line of Aaron. So you had a lot of great expectation. People are primed. They are ready for this to happen. And here he comes baptizing and they want to know kind of at the religious center of where the faith is in Jerusalem, what's going on? Who are you? Okay. Okay. You're not the Christ. Verse 21. And they ask him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? Why do they think he might be Elijah? Elijah is an end times figure. If you go to Malachi chapter four and you read it, I think it's only like five verses. It speaks of Elijah to come. And so the rabbis had this really great expectation that Elijah would come. He would settle disputes, right? We're arguing theology. Elijah will help us fix it. He may even do some miracles and he will help prepare the way for the Lord to come. Are you that guy? And this is what John says. I'm not all he gives them. Could you give us a little more, a little more, John? He says, I am not. Now, this is interesting. If you read the synoptic gospel, so that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, called synoptic because they're seen together. They, they propound much of the same story in the way they tell it. John is, John is different in his presentation. And if you go there, you'll see that John actually is identified with Elijah, but then John's gospel does not identify him with Elijah. So how do we make sense of this when the gospels don't seem to maybe connect the way that we, we think they should? Well, it's actually really simple. Here, John says, I am, I am not actually him. In the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it does explain that he's the one to come in the power and the spirit of Elijah. So he's coming in the power and the spirit of Elijah, but he's not Elijah. The gospels cohere. They make perfect sense. Okay, you're not the Christ. You're not the Elijah. We got one more for you. Verse 22, then they, then they said to him, oh, I'm sorry, verse 21, are you the prophet? 
Who are they talking about? Probably Deuteronomy 18, beginning in verse 15, Moses promised there would be a prophet, one who would come like him, who would speak the words of God. And Moses makes very clear when he comes, you need to listen to him. Okay, you're not the Christ, you're not Elijah. Are you the prophet? Are you the one Moses spoke about? And what does he say? No, his, his answers are very interesting. I am not, I am not, no. What would you be thinking if you were sent? Help me out, John. Give me something. It's really interesting. I was listening to a sermon by Alistair Begg years ago, and he was talking about this passage. The context was, I think, a conference, and he was talking about the evangelical crisis. And he was talking about specifically kind of leaders who are more, how we're drawn to maybe more charismatic people than we are people of integrity. And then he was citing this passage and he says, John's kind of an interesting case study with this because he's a PR nightmare. John, I want you to go out there and promote yourself, promote your book, promote your brand. And what does he say? I'm not, I am not, no. He gives us nothing. In fact, it's actually really interesting watching him because his example is amazing humility here on how he pushes everything off himself and directs all attention to Jesus himself. It's very inspiring. It's very amazing. And it's not bad to have pastors who might, you know, share those things or their teachings or things like that. I'm not saying that, but it's really amazing here to see the humility of John. And so verse 22, then they said to him, well, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And this is what he says. He says, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He finally speaks in the affirmative and he gives him something. And what he does is he cites who he is in light of Isaiah chapter 40, verse three. This passage originally speaks, from my understanding, of a kind of new exodus. The exodus in the Old Testament becomes this picture of deliverance that's gonna be used again and again, but, but speaking of a new exodus. And so God is gonna have a new exodus bringing his exiles out of, out of exile, stop saying that, <laughs> out of exile and back into the land. Prepare the way for the Lord, get ready. He's about to move, turn your attention, he's gonna do it. John says, I am a voice doing that. Why am I out here baptizing? Because I am preparing people for his coming. He's about to come. And we know in the other gospels, it's a baptism of repentance. They're turning from their sins and they're turning and waiting for God. This is all really amazing because they didn't practice baptism the way we do. In fact, the only baptism that I know of that they did was this kind of conversion or proselyte baptism, where if you wanted to be a part of Israel, you would do this. And from my understanding, it was a self-administered baptism. But John's out there, he's administering it, which is why they're like, what are you doing? Who are you? And he's calling them to repent. What, what do we need to repent? We're God's people already. And it's like, no, you're not. You need to repent, turn from your sin and get ready. He's coming. How is he making straight the way of the Lord? He's preparing them by the baptism of repentance. Verse 24. Now, those who were sent were, the fair, or were from the Pharisees. So Pharisees were also a part of this group in which was sent to John. And they asked him saying, why then do you baptize? If you're not the Christ, you're not Elijah, neither are you the prophet. In other words, as D.A. Carson says, by what authority are you doing this? Who are you? You're none of these special end times figures, yet you're doing a very special, unique, 
amazing thing of baptism out here. It's going viral. People are coming out to you. Why are you doing this? John answered them saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. John again, pointed off of himself. It is he who coming after me, speaking of chronological birth order, is preferred before me, speaking of rank, he ranks ahead of me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Beth Abara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. How did John know all of this stuff here about the Messiah and his coming? Because God gave him his testimony. The Messiah is coming. You will be a voice crying in the wilderness. And as John cries, he cries with incredible humility. Servants were expected to do for their masters whatever slaves would do, minus one thing, carry their shoes. John says, I'm not even worthy to carry, to untie this guy's shoes. And as we were worshiping, singing today, it, it really struck me. Not just John's humility, but how his humility points to even the surpassing greatness of our Lord. And it's like, do we even realize whom, whom we're dealing with here? Do we even realize the greatness of Jesus and whom we talk about, the name we lift up, the one we pray through, the one we have given our lives to? Do we realize how great he really is? That you, I, you're not worthy to untie his shoes. And yet he opens his arm and he welcomes you into his arms. You're not worthy to carry his dirty shoes if he walked on a dusty road, yet he will take you into his house and he will feed you from his table. That is amazing. How did John know all this? He didn't figure it out on his own. God revealed it to him. God told him. And so John knows so much already that the, the Messiah is coming in his lifetime. And, and it's coming in this Old Testament type way from Isaiah in which he's now a part of. God's testimony continues, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he says this, behold. Behold is one of those great Bible words where it's like, stop, look and listen. This is embarrassing, but from football day, stop, look and listen for the mighty, whatever your team's name is. I heard a wow, yeah, I'll do that again. <laughs> behold, stop and look, and everybody stops and look. And here's what he says. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me. That is of higher rank for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. John testified before Jesus came. Now he's testifying when Jesus came. Jesus has already been baptized at this point, And now John is calling out publicly as he sees him, everybody look, this guy is the lamb of the world. Where did John get that? How did John know that? God had to have told him. Now, as Christians, we read that passage and go, oh yeah, that's talking about the cross. Well, here, here's the tough part with scholarship. How much did they really understand the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? It's so far forward in the gospel 
some people would argue, yeah, that seems to be interpolated way too far ahead of the rest of the gospel. Jesus hasn't taught yet. He hasn't died. He hasn't risen from the dead. How would they possibly know that? How could they possibly understand that? We read the gospels. The the disciples don't know much. They're constantly being rebuked. Jesus gives sighs. Guys, they're not getting it. So how is it that John the Baptist is getting this already? What I'm asking is how would a first century person have heard this phrase when he said it? This is the fun part of study. It's at least four different things that it could be. Number one, it could be referring to a warrior lamb, an apocalyptic warrior lamb. The Jewish people were expecting this in first Enoch. And I think the testimony of Benjamin talks about this. So it could be that. I tend not to look toward I tend to look toward the Old Testament though, if I'm trying to figure out where's this coming from, you know, it's probably something old. So is it there? Like, "Ah, I don't don't really know. It's hard for me to land there. D.A. Carson gives another option. It could be kind of a twofold, a warrior lamb, but also the actual sacrificial lamb. And the thought is John could be speaking better than he knows. God revealed it. John speaks. He doesn't fully understand it, but he still speaks the truth. I think we all speak better than we know about God, amen? (laughs) If you keep reading John, Caiaphas will speak better than he knew. Another option is that lamb here is referring to to a leader, this leader of the flock who's gonna come, judge enemies, take care of sinners and save people. And the last one is that maybe this is a picture of Passover. This is the Passover lamb. Maybe that's the imagery in which John is getting this from. Whatever it means exactly and how John is trying to mean it, we know ultimately what it means and we know what it means in the light of the whole gospel. Jesus takes the sins of the world and he will do this through his death on the cross and through his resurrection from the dead. He will become the spotless, pure, perfect lamb of God who takes all of our sins and completely satisfies the debt. You owe God nothing because he took care of everything. Can I get a witness? John continues here, verse 32. And John bore witness saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he remained on, upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, here's God's testimony again to John, upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Go with me now to Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse one. God reveals to John that the spirit will descend and remain. This is very significant. What is significant? That the spirit would remain upon him. This remaining here is speaking of kind of two things. This anointing, this chosenness, and also a power to do the ministry that God has called him to do. When Jesus is publicly baptized and the spirit falls, this is a public declaration that God says, this is my son and I am empowering him for the work of the ministry. And this is going to happen through the power of my spirit. God not only testifies this to John, God has written this down and he's prepared us for this. Isaiah chapter 11, verse one. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. Jesse is David's Father. Through David's line, we are expecting not only a king, but an eternal kingdom to happen. But what's going on in the Old Testament? Israel, the kingdom is split. The north falls apart. 
the south falls apart years later. And it's kind of cut down to this stub, not much of a kingdom, but there's still roots. And what does God promise? There will be a branch that shall grow out of its roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. He already promises the spirit to come, to descend, and to remain upon somebody very important. This is the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Go with me now, please, to Isaiah 61, verse 1. Not only does God say this about his servant, his anointed one, the servant knows this. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. When God sends his spirit, God tells John very clearly, it's going to be the Messiah upon whom it sits. And we see in the Old Testament, there is a rich testimony that this is the one who's gonna come and do incredible things with that same spirit that came upon David. We know 1 Samuel 17, who did David slay? Goliath. If you read the chapter before, David was anointed and the spirit of God came upon him. How was he able to do what he did? Because he was empowered by the spirit of God to do it. Jesus is doing everything in conjunction with the Father and with the Spirit. Back here in John, John chapter 1, verse 33. I'm going to read the last part of it. Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. God gave John testimony. Not only would the Spirit be upon him, he would baptize with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? What does it mean to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? Let's go back to the Old Testament again. Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 25. Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. What does that sound like? Washed. Washed of what? And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. This, this seems to be a washing of dirt symbolized as sin, idolatry, a heart that is not after God's own heart. God says, I will give you a new heart. That sounds like transformation. And I will put a new spirit in you. Transformation. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That sounds like obedience and devotion. When God promises to give his spirit, he is promising that he's going to forgive people of sins. He's going to give them a new heart of devotion to him. And he's going to bring about a transformation. When the Messiah comes, this is the guy who's going to do all of these things. And not only that, when the spirit comes, this pictures that the Old Testament age of promise is now being fulfilled. God has been promising a kingdom, salvation, forgiveness, dealing with sin and evil and enemies. The spirit comes, it's happening. It's becoming a reality. Now, this is the one who's gonna baptize with the spirit and change your life, wash your sins, make you a brand new person. Can I get a witness? 
There we go. Verse 34, and I have seen and testified that this is the son of God. Now, when he says son of God here, there are textual variants, meaning that some manuscripts don't have this. I bring it up because based on the manuscript evidence, based on picking the harder readings, when I say harder readings, that means that a scribe is more likely to take something difficult and to try to clarify it. He's not trying to change it. He's trying to clarify. So he's probably taking what I think the original is here, elect or chosen, and trying to clarify it as son of God versus the other way around. This doesn't change the truth of scripture. It doesn't change the, val the, the validity of the Bible and how it's been translated. They're both true. The question is, what is John emphasizing right here? And I think the manuscript evidence says that it is speaking of, this is the elect, this is the chosen one. Why is that so significant? Go with me again to the Old Testament. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Isaiah 42, verse 1. There's that word again. Behold. It stops you in your tracks and you look. My servant whom I uphold. My elect one. My chosen one. And whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. You see how it's now connecting servant, elect, spirit. And there's more in the Old Testament. It all comes together in Jesus Christ. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. God is so gracious to give John his testimony. And God is so gracious to now give us that very same testimony. Now watch what God does with it and how he expands his testimony of Jesus from one person to the next. Verse 35, again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, behold, the lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and, and seeing them following, he said to them, what do you seek? quite an amazing question for Jesus to turn on and to ask anybody. What do you seek? What, what are you really after here? You want a miracle or do you want salvation? What is it? Then they said to him, rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher. This is a very courteous title, very appropriate title of honor to use. And they ask him, where are you staying? Why do they want to know where he's staying? Probably because they want to talk to him. And maybe the home setting is a little bit easier to ask theological questions or things. I don't know. I don't know exactly what's going on. But they ask him where he's staying. He says to them, come and see. He commands them, come. And he promises them, you will see. What an incredible invitation here. They came and they saw where he was staying and they remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. That is about 4 p.m. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew. This is Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and he said to him, dude, no, he didn't say that. <laughs> he says, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. Christ and Messiah mean the same thing, the anointed one. They're just two different languages. Messiah is Hebrew, Christ is Greek. And he brought him to Jesus. When Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. Jesus here displays supernatural knowledge. I know your name and I know your family. 
And then he says, you shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Not only does Jesus show supernatural knowledge, he shows supernatural power and purpose. I am gonna take you and turn you into a rock. If you know anything about the rest of the story, Peter is anything but a rock. He is going to walk on water only to take his eyes off the Lord and fall. Jesus is gonna proclaim his death and resurrection only for Peter to get in the way and say, I got a better idea. He's gonna follow Jesus, but only from a distance so he doesn't get in trouble and then deny him three times publicly. Jesus' supernatural ability to take someone and to turn them into what he wants, regardless of how bad they are, regardless of how much you mess up, is profound. If the Lord wants to turn you into something, you can't stop him. He is that powerful and he will do it. He will make it happen. Because our God is sovereign and he is powerful and he is absolutely amazing. And it's so great to watch what he has done with other people and go, if you can do that with Peter, praise God, how about the rest of us? This is so much fun here. God gave his testimony to John. John gives it to Andrew. Andrew gives it to Simon. And now we see this incredible confession of what Jesus is gonna do with him. The witnessing train doesn't stop though. This sharing, calling, discovering, and then eventually believing or confessing, which is the whole end goal here, it keeps going. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee and he found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Now, I have to be a little grammatical with you. The sentence in Greek sounds much different than what you just read. I'm gonna retranslate it for you. The reason it sounds different is the word Jesus is actually at the very end of the sentence. And so we have to figure out what action is going with Jesus here. The, 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 the verse reads more like this. The following day, he wanted to go into Galilee. And the question is, who is he? And he found Philip. The question is, who is he? And Jesus said to him, follow me. Jesus's actions in the Greek are only in accordance with that last speaking part from my opinion and what I studied. If that is true and if I'm correct, that means that this is probably Andrew who wanted to go to Galilee, Andrew who wanted to find Philip. And this fits the context better because the context is not about the calling of Jesus on his disciples, although that's true. John's context is the spreading of the testimony that they give from one person to the next. So that's what I'm going with here. Andrew finds Philip. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael, who is probably Bartholomew in the other gospels. And he said to him, dude, no, he didn't say that. He says, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We have found the guy from the first five books of the Bible. We have found the guy from the prophets, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah. We have found him. The information he gives here about Jesus is accurate to the time period. You'd give someone in their city, someone in their father. I think we should totally bring this back. I'm just kidding. But it would be kind of fun though. Nathaniel said to him, can any good come out of Nazareth? What is emphasized here is this, out of Nazareth, can anything good come? Now, I don't think his heart's in the wrong place based on what Jesus says next. I think his mindset is more like this. 
Um, Old Testament, I don't really see Nazareth showing up anywhere for anything significant. I'm pretty sure the Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem, somewhere else. Um, Nazareth, I, I just don't see it. This 600-person town, maybe 2,000, not very big, nowhere really in the Old Testament. Anything good? Like, not getting it. Listen to what he says to him. Philip said to him, come and see. He invites him, come and see. Come and experience it for yourself. You may not get it all. In fact, you won't get it all. But you don't get it all and then come to Jesus. You come to Jesus and you get it all. And he begins to teach and and to instruct and train you. You don't clean yourself up and then come to God. You don't understand Jesus 100% and then come to him. You come to him with your partial understanding, your no understanding, your broken understanding. And he instructs, he teaches you. This week, there was two gentlemen out here in the parking lot. And I was like, why not? So I grabbed two Gospels of John's here and I walked over to them. I said, hey guys, I want to give this to you. And they're like, oh, thanks. You know, and start looking at it. And I said, this is kind of how I've been doing it lately. I said, you guys, you probably agree the world's a pretty broken place, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty broken place. I think most people would agree with that. I said, you ever wonder how it got so broken? Just let them think about it. You know, it kind of gives one of these, points up to God. So he's got some kind of understanding he's working with. You ever wonder how it got so broken? How it got so messed up? Well, this actually explains it. And it explains how God has actually fixed that problem. And I said the first three pages here actually explain it in a summary form. The rest of it here is a testimony of Jesus's life, something like that. And I invited them, come and see. I said, I want you to see, read, experience this for yourself. And so I'd encourage you to do the same thing, to encourage people to come and to see, come and hear. Most people do not read the Bible. I would venture to say most Christians don't read the Bible. We need to read. We need to get God's, this is God's testimony. And it starts with what he has said. And there's no greater testimony than that. Coming back here to verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and he said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Jesus again is showing his supernatural knowledge. Here's the guy truly walking in the Israelite way. No deceit, no underhandedness in which he is doing. Jesus is not being sarcastic. This is an honest, truthful, good confession here. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And we all want to know what, what were you doing under the fig tree? This is one of the fun parts where it doesn't tell us. Was he praying? Was he asking God for a sign? God, please show me your glory. God, is the Messiah ever going to come? I don't know. Whatever it was, it was enough information for him to go. He saw me probably by himself. No one else could have known this. How did he know this? You must be someone significant. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And he confesses him with these incredible terms. Son of God and king of Israel, I think go here together from the Old Testament. Really briefly in 2 Samuel 7, God promised David's line to sit on the throne. God says, your next son, I will take him. I will be his father and he will be my son. What did God mean when he said that? To take him as his son, Solomon, means I'm going to take him to be a king to rule in the place of the father. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 speaks of this. 
You are my son, today I become your father. It's a coronation ceremony. It's, it's anointing the king in that place. So he recognizes that he is the son ruling in the place of the father. He is the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? He says, you will see greater things than these. You thought that was impressive? Come along and I will show you even more. And if you come back next week, you will see that too. John chapter two, we're gonna jump right into miracles. Jesus is going to reveal his glory. Remember John said, we saw his glory. Chapter two starts with what glory did they see? Jesus is going to show it to them starting there. And he said to him, most assuredly, or truly, truly, I say to you, hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending, going up and descending, coming down upon the son of man. Jesus alludes again to the Old Testament, Genesis 28. This is when Jacob fell asleep. He had a dream. The angels were ascending and descending at this place on this ladder, picturing God's presence, God sending his ministers to work. And Jacob woke up, holy smokes, God is in this place. And he names it Bethel, which means house of God. Jesus takes that understanding of God's presence in his work. And he says, it's going to be on me. You're going to see God showing me, revealing me. And he invites them to come along with it. This last part especially is so fun. Putting all this together, we see that God gives us testimony about Jesus. What testimony does he give us? The lamb of God, the one anointed with God's spirit, the spirit baptizer, the chosen, the elect, the son of God, the king of Israel, the one whose surpassing greatness is so great, we are not worthy to untie his shoes. Did you see that there is great Old Testament connection with this? The Bible is one amazing unfolding story where God promises and God fulfills. It is his testimony from beginning to end. We receive that testimony and when we share it, which I don't think there's a better way to share it than personally from one person to the next, it makes impact and God is using it to save souls. Let us know God's testimony of Jesus. Let us know these. And, and, and I don't mean just quickly reference, but like, no, you know this. You went to the Old Testament, you read this verse. And in the New Testament, you saw how Jesus fulfilled it. Hide that in your heart and be ready to share these truths about him to anyone that comes across your path. Let's invite people to come and see. Come experience Jesus for yourself. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and let's continue to worship our great God. God, thank you that you have given us your testimony and I pray that you give us the grace to sit on the things that are true of Jesus Christ and that would richly penetrate our hearts. I pray that his surpassing greatness would drive us so far to our knees that humility would overwhelm us in the most freeing, beautiful, worshipful way possible. Jesus, you are surpassingly great. We're not worthy to untie your shoes and yet you allow us to jump into your arms. Thank you, Lord. Father, you are holy and you have invited us into your holiness by making us holy. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for giving us your testimony. Thank you for giving us understanding and now giving us your spirit that we may serve you and worship you. Lord, we, we praise you. We worship you. Be glorified now and all this week in Christ's name we pray, amen.